If you noticed on the shirts that all of them and I are wearing, it says legacy in very bold letters. Uh, Legacy, of course, is what's left behind after everything else fades away. It's what is left after the dust settles. Uh, For Abraham Lincoln, you might think of the Emancipation Proclamation as his legacy. For Martin Luther King Jr., you probably think the Civil Rights Act in the 60s. Uh, For Brett Favre, I would love to say it would be touchdowns or yardage, but the reality is Brett Favre's legacy is interceptions. We have to own that. That's that's the reality of, of where we are at now. Legacy, it's, it's what's left behind. Uh, so that's, that's our theme this year, and I love that Matt Wiggy, while we were up at Arrowhead Bible Camp this last year, asked an excellent question to our campers, and it's one I would prompt to you. What is the, the sort of legacy that you hope to leave behind to the next generation? What kind of legacy do you want to leave? And when we were up at camp, we got a variety of answers. Uh, some of the students said that they would say their legacy was successful as long as at some point they own a Mastercraft boat. Uh, For others, it was where they lived. But one of my favorite answers was uh, one of our 12th graders said that he wanted to leave a legacy that his kids would be proud of. What kind of legacy do you want to leave? The way that you answer that question, our vision for our legacy will deeply impact our decisions and our actions. And that's what we're going to be talking on today. If you've been a part of Bethany Church at all over this summer, if you've been here or online, you have probably heard us talk through our sermon series on the faith of the flawed, which is uh, we've been walking through Hebrews 11, which is often called the Hall of Faith. And uh, we've been looking at heroes from Abel uh, to Noah to Abraham. Uh, We've seen Moses and Joseph and Rahab and all these different people who persevered and ran the race with endurance, not by their own virtue or values, but by faith. Uh, You see that refrain constantly echoed through Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Moses, etc. I hope that at some point you have asked yourself, why was it by faith? Uh, We know from Ephesians 2 that we are saved by grace through faith, um, but God could have chosen to save us through any number of things. It could have been through goodness. It could have been through gentleness or kindness. Why would God choose faith? I think that it's unique that he did because faith by itself isn't worth a whole lot. Faith isn't an especially virtuous attribute. And to illustrate this point, um, I'm a Packers fan, love the green and gold. And if I were to tell you from the stage, hey, I'm pretty confident that come January, the Green Bay Packers will hoist up the NFC North Championship trophy, you'd probably credit that to me as wisdom. Because in the last 11 years, our green and gold have won eight trophies, which is pretty great. However, of our beloved friends here in the church like Tyler Fisher or Dave Mickelson were to come up here and make the same claim as a Vikings fan, if he said, hey, the purple and gold Kirk Cousins is going to take it, you would probably try to mute your scoffs at him. You'd probably try not to laugh out loud. Why? Because they've only won two in that same 11-year frame. Notice it's not uh, Dave or Tyler's sincerity or the degree of their faith that makes the Vikings more likely to win. It's just that they're a bad team. (laughs) So we've learned... (laughs) we've learned that your faith is only as strong as the object of your faith is. Faith by itself isn't worth a whole lot. So if that's true, and if all of our Hebrews 11 heroes have persevered by faith, the question has to be asked, what is the unshakable object of their faith that kept them upright? Luckily, Uh, God does not leave us asking that question in a vacuum. So you can open your Bibles, if you have them on you, to Hebrews 12. That's where we're going to be today. So we're jumping ahead of our sermon series temporarily. We're going to be in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Um, If you have a Bible, please pull it out and open it on your lap. I promise the next 30 minutes will be more valuable if you are looking at the text and not just mindlessly gazing off when I'm reading it. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Hebrews is going to be in the back towards Revelation. The big numbers we call chapters. So we're going to be in the big number 12, chapter 12, and we're going to be in the small number verses 1 and 2. So big number 12, small number 1 and 2. You can read along with me. It'll also be on the screen. Therefore, 
since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is some really good Bible. All of the Bible is really good, but if you were going to memorize two verses, this would be a really good chunk to choose. And it starts with the word, therefore. If you were raised in a Christian context or a church setting, you've probably heard the question, what is the therefore, therefore? And so that's what we're going to start with. Uh, this is just establishing context. We could have just as easily said, in light of this truth or because of this, then blank. And so the context here, we've been establishing for seven weeks. You should know it, Bethany. It is in light of the, the evidence, the testimony of these heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. In light of the saints who have gone before you, then something else. It's actually highlighted in the next phrase of the verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and what does a witness do in a court? A witness takes the stand and he provides uh, a testimony which is used as evidence. So the question here that needs to be asked is what is uh, the evidence being provided by these heroes of the faith? What is their legacy that they left behind? Well, it is that by faith, these men and women persevered through all sorts of trials and challenges, running with endurance the race that had been set before them. This cloud of witnesses is a ceaselessly resounding testimony and evidence to the power that the Spirit grants us by faith in our faithful God. In light of this truth, Hebrews 12 goes on to commend to us two action verbs. If you look in your text, you can probably see them. The two things that come after the therefore are firstly, let us lay aside, and secondly, let us run. So we're going to tackle those one at a time. First of all, let us lay aside. If you look at your text, it says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. I'm afraid that far too many Christians, when they read a verse like this, immediately relay in their own minds uh, a list of the more societally egregious sins. And as long as they can say that this isn't true of them, then they've cast all that needs to be laid aside. Uh, as an example for this litmus test, somebody might ask themselves, okay, have I murdered somebody? No. Uh, have I used a racist slur recently? Also no. Do I cuss as much as my cousin Barry? No, I'm good on that too. As long as we can say no to those things, then we've done all that we need to do. But the reality is, the scriptural mandate for holiness is more than the abstinence of the extremities of sin behavior. The biblical call for holiness is more than changing our behavior. Hebrews here in uh, verse 1 lays out two separate words. He says, weight and sin. Some translations, like uh, our pastor David's favorite, the CSB, says hindrance here instead of weight. And I think hindrance is a helpful word here. Uh, perhaps we might be able to make a quick Sunday school definition of sin. I might say that sin is rebellion against God. It's spitting in his face, face and telling him that I know better than you do what's best for me. But what is meant by weight here? What is meant by the term hindrance here? As you can see from my frame, I am not a long-distance runner. Uh, as my favorite Tolkien character says, we dwarves are very dangerous over short distances. However, I have come to befriend more than one good long-distance runners. Uh, for whatever reason, these people actually enjoy running, and they're not being chased. They're not being enticed. They actually crazy. You live long enough, you'll run into them. They're nuts. Everybody knows about long-distance running that there are a few elementary things that you can be doing uh, to, to support yourself. One, you should be exercising regularly. That's obvious. You should sleep well. You should eat the right food. But the most competitive runners, the ones who are doing 5Ks and, and marathons and even, crazily enough, Ironmans, they know to take it a step further. 
And so they'll wear their garments and their Fitbits and their Apple Watches to bed to track their sleep biometrics. They'll uh, be very careful about what they eat and when they eat it when it comes to calories and carbs and all sorts of other nutrients. They wear the lightest clothing. They exercise in such a way where they are at their athletic peak come race day. They take every advantage they possibly can to win the competition. And in the same way, the author of Hebrews here is challenging us to go beyond the bare minimum standard that we've set for ourselves. Surely, we ought to cast off every sin, but not only that, now we're being told we need to be careful about the morally neutral things that we're doing. What is a weight or a hindrance to a distance runner? Well, uh, let's first of all talk about what sin would be. If in the race sinning is cheating, it's uh, illegally going against the rules, maybe it's hopping on a four-wheeler and getting to the end of the race faster, or it's uh, taking a shortcut, that's not what a hindrance is. A hindrance in this case isn't uh, explicitly going against the rules, but it's doing something foolish. Picture if as I was running a 5K, you saw me running with a 45-pound dumbbell. It's not illegal, but it's really stupid. In the same way, these hindrances that the Bible are talking about are the foolish things that aren't necessarily uh, wrong to begin with, but they certainly can become that way. It's also worth noting that these hindrances aren't stupid, they're not foolish, if we don't have a race to be run. A 45-pound dumbbell would make a whole lot of sense if I was in a weight room, but if I've been called to something, if I've been called to running a race, then all of a sudden it becomes very foolish. So brothers and sisters, my question to you firstly is what sort of weights are you carrying today that hinder your faithful obedience to Christ? What sort of weights are you carrying today that hinder your faithful obedience to Christ? Again, I'm not speaking on explicit sins here, though I do think we should talk about that. That's a good thing to talk about. I'm more curious as to how you spend your time and your resources in morally neutral ways. For some people, this might look like spending time on a screen. Maybe it's watching the entire Stranger Things season four series in an evening. Maybe it's spending too much time on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat. Uh, for other people, it's PS5s and Xboxes. For some, it's the pursuit of reputation. For some, it's uh, having a work ethic that's broadly perceived by everyone to be really strong. It might be your GPA, uh, a raise at work, a position of acclaim or authority. It might even be uh, your athletic performance. This all points back to the heart of our legacy. To borrow from the old story about the three little pigs, you will either build your legacy out of straw and wood and social media standing, or you will build it on a firm foundation. Now notice, none of those examples that I gave are inherently bad things, right? All of them can be done in, in a way that honors your calendar and honors our God. The litmus test here, the, the test to discern whether or not this morally neutral thing is a hindrance, is this, a good thing becomes a bad thing when a good thing becomes a ruling thing. A good thing becomes a bad thing if a good thing becomes a ruling thing. So, uh, for example, uh, we just had a lot of water skiers in here. Water skiing, which is not necessarily a bad thing, it can become a bad thing if it becomes a ruling thing. What weight are you carrying that hinders your time with God? What will be said of you and of your legacy and of how you spent your time when everything else has gone and faded into the past? Let us lay aside every weight and sin. The second action verb that we had was let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. Let us run. Uh, what does it mean, firstly, to run? And secondly, what is this race that we've been called to run? I firmly believe that far too many churched Americans believe that behavioral modification is somehow synonymous with Christian growth and development. This is somewhat the equivalent of being handed a McDonald's cheeseburger when you specifically ask for a Culver's Big Cheese Pub Burger. It's a cheap knockoff. It's a phony trick. It is not the same thing. Behavioral modification is changing uh, the behaviors of our sin rather than attesti attesting, uh, going after the roots of our sin. 
The source of this logic comes out from a misuse of God's law laid out in his scripture. So in the Bible, God gives us his law as a mirror. Uh, That mirror is really useful. It's an important tool because without it, you could never see the gunk in your teeth. You would have no way of seeing the leftover bits of food between your teeth, and that leads to disease. And so it's important that we have a mirror. It would be really foolish if after looking in the mirror and checking out your teeth, you were to go on living life as if there was nothing there with no changes. That would be stupid. It would be even more foolish if you were to pry the mirror off the wall and begin to pick at your teeth with the corner of it. The mirror was not designed to floss your teeth. In the same way, the law that God has given us was not designed to be your means for justification. It wasn't meant to to vindicate your innocence or to prove your goodness. Behavioral modification will not save even one person from hell, and it will not result in your joy or God's glory. It's like this. Uh, My parents uh, back in Athens have an apple tree. Uh, I grew up just loving this apple tree. And every fall, you get to see these big, voluptuous red apples, right? But picture with me in this analogy that you have, instead of bright red and green apples, uh, dead, mushy, rotting brown ones. Behavioral modification would be like going to Sherwin-Williams, grabbing a can of bright red paint, coming back and slathering those apples in a coat of red. It might look good for a moment, but it's not fixing a thing. Any half-decent arborist would know that instead of painting the apples, what you're called to do is to tend to the roots, to make sure the soil is good, to ensure that it's getting water and sunlight. If running the race is not painting our rotting apples red, then how do we attend to the roots of our trees? How do we lay aside hindrances and sin and run the race before us? All of this is pointing us to the second verse of Hebrews chapter 12. So look back at your text. Hebrews 12 verse 2 starts off with three really big words. Looking to Jesus. This is like all of Christianity in three words. Looking to Jesus. The rest of the verse reads like this. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse two begins by no mistake with a hearty encouragement. The first thing it says about Jesus is that he is the founder. Other translations would say the originator or the author, and he is the perfecter of our faith. Our text roots the entire chapter in the faithfulness of our Savior. The argument goes like this. If Jesus was faithful to us in our rebellion against him, how much more will he be faithful to us in our adoption into his family? And this has been the thing that we've heard echoed week after week for seven weeks now in Hebrews 11, that our security resides not in our own character or resolve, but in God's character and in his resolve. Let me illustrate this point just a bit further. Uh, My wife is due with our first daughter in September. We're super excited about it. Let's say two years from now, on a sunny July Sunday, not unlike the one that we're experiencing today, my daughter and I decide to go to, uh, let's just pick, Airport Beach, which happens to be the spot where tonight, if you go at four o'clock, you'll see a ski show. Go and do that. Uh, But let's say in this analogy or story, I take my daughter to Airport Beach, and we walk hand in hand into the muddy, mucky waters of the Mississippi. And as we get slightly deeper and deeper, the water level rises from my ankle to my shin, from my shin to my knee, from my knee to to my quads. For my daughter, the water level rises from her chest to her shoulders, from her shoulders to her neck, from her neck to her chin. And what happens to her grip on my hand as she gets deeper into the water? Well, of course, it's tightening, right? And why is it tightening? Because she knows that if she were to become separated from me, she would be at risk of drowning and floating into the the river, and I would never have any way to save her if, if she were to become separated. So she's gripping really tightly. But the fallacy of my daughter's thinking is that her safety is somehow contingent on her strength or somehow contingent on her resolve. The reality is, 
if my little girl were to suddenly go unconscious, if she were to lose all ability to procure the strength necessary to hold my hand, she would still be safe. Why? Because I'm going to be a loving father, because I'm going to care for her, because her safety is tethered to my resolve and my strength. In the same way, brothers and sisters, if we as earthly parents know how to care for our children, how much more does our heavenly father know how to preserve us? We are called to actively recall God's faithfulness to us. This is highlighted just two chapters earlier in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. It's on the screen in front of you. One of my favorite verses, it says this, let us hold unswervingly to the faith we profess. Why? Not because we are able, not because we are faithful, but because he who promised is faithful. Jesus is faithful. It's in light of his steadfast and unchanging faithfulness that we can now look to Jesus' legacy, which is highlighted in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, a little bit further on. If you would have asked any Jew in Jesus' day uh, who the coming Messiah was going to be, you probably would have heard a variety of answers. Uh, But some of the more popular ones probably would have been, hey, uh, you should expect this militant ruler who's going to overthrow the evil Roman regime and install our Jewish kingdom. Or maybe you would have heard uh, to look for the coming of this purple-robed, golden-crowned king who is going to reign in glory and splendor. And those aren't inaccurate depictions of who Jesus is. But it wasn't very often back then that it seems uh, Jews took a whole lot of pride in the man of sorrows depicted in Isaiah 53. Yet, in Jesus' earthly ministry, that is exactly who he came as. If we look at the book of Revelations, which is the last book in the Bible, uh, a lot of times it gets confused as this, um, as this book that was given to us to interpret where, when, and how Jesus is going to come. But in reality, it was actually Jesus' uh, vision, his, his revelation to John, and it was intended for those seven churches as an encouragement to persevere through their persecution, to hold fast because God is good and God is strong. And in the fifth chapter of Revelation 5, John is told by an angel or an elder, he says, uh, John, look for the coming of the Lion of Judah. Now, people in a church will know that the Lion of Judah is, of course, Jesus. And when you think of a lion, what are the characteristics that come to mind? You probably think ferocity and bravery and strength and nobility. And so John, he turns his attention and he looks to this lion coming and he sees no lion. Instead, what he sees standing in its place is a lamb slain with blood. In Mark's gospel, Jesus himself says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hebrews 12, 2 emphatically establishes this legacy. We are told that this faithful Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. The only time a bad thing has ever happened to a good person in human history, the only one to ever live without sin, is now butchered on the chopping block that our sins had earned for us so that we could now be reconciled to him, adopted into his family. Jesus suffered. Our attention for this moment turns rather than to the crown, to the cross, instead of to glory, to shame. The legacy of Jesus is inextricably linked to the suffering of Jesus. The glory of Jesus is inextricably linked to the suffering of Jesus. There are many in the American evangelical church today who would have you believe that Christ's death has purchased for you health, wealth, and prosperity, separation from any discomfort in life. And this is rank heresy that we ought to denounce. It's anti-biblical theology. Nowhere in the Bible are we told that life will become comfortable when we follow Jesus. Nowhere in the Bible are we promised that we Christians will never experience the most heartbreaking circumstances our world has to offer, circumstances like cancer or miscarriage or broken relationships. 
Suffering is everywhere around us, and the Bible makes no claim that we will be removed from it. The question that we need to answer is this. Jesus suffered well. How? Jesus persevered by looking to the joy that was set before him. It's right there in Hebrews 12, too. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. His motivation rested entirely in the character of his father's faithfulness. There are two implications that we should hold, that we should cling to in light of this truth. Firstly, we need to recognize that suffering, our suffering, is not meaningless. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 tells us this. This light and momentary affliction is preparing or producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Brother or sister, you need to know that if your hope is in Christ, then your suffering is not in vain. God's word is replete with encouragement about how he uses our suffering for our good and for his glory. So take rest when you suffer because you know that the transcendent God promises to redeem every broken piece of our lives. Secondly, Jesus' role as the lamb slain on our behalf ought to remind us that he has purchased for us eternal joy. This means that we live not now in a peak, but in a valley, not at the ceiling, but at the floor of our joy. By God's grace, by God's grace, his sons and his daughters can confidently endure persecution and suffering, knowing full well that things will only get better from here. We have this hope as an anchor for our souls, firm, steadfast, secure. For the non-Christian, for the one who doesn't claim Christ as Lord and Savior, the opposite is true. This life and every pain and joy is the pinnacle. This is the climax. It doesn't get better than this, and it will only last for a number of decades at best. Jesus' suffering for us produces our redeeming hope for a sweet eternity that will outlast and outweigh every pain-filled moment in our earthly lives. I will not ask you whether or not you're suffering today. You are either suffering now or you will be soon. It's a painful truth in this broken world. If you are not in a season of suffering, now you should be preparing for it tomorrow. Faith in Christ does not keep us from pain, but it radically changes how we are called to persevere. So not if, but when you suffer, suffer in the shadow of Christ's cross. Take refuge that we are not without a sympathetic high priest, that this suffering isn't meaningless and that this too shall pass. All this is rooted in the legacy of Christ, which is through the cross. It's through his suffering. This was the legacy of Jesus. That is a word that we've used a lot today, so uh, hopefully after today we can cool it a little bit, cool the jets there, but I will ask again, what is the legacy that you're called to? Or more aptly, I would like to ask you, if, uh, God forbid, you were to pass away today, what would be said of you? What would be the legacy that you've left behind? Our vision for our legacy deeply impacts our decisions and our actions. What will be said of you by the next generation? Will you be able to say along with Paul that I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith? The legacy of a Christ follower, the race you've been called to run, is laid out by Jesus in Matthew uh, chapter 16, verse 24. It says this, If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The legacy of a Jesus follower isn't of praying a prayer or walking an aisle, 
According to Jesus, it's picking up your cross. Daily Christian living is daily Christian dying, dying to self. If we become what we behold, then look to Jesus. Run the race by surrendering daily your wants and your desires and your hopes and submit yourself to Christ and to his word. Feast on his Bible. Pray sweet prayers in the morning when you wake up and when you go to sleep. Dwell in the presence of your Father. Find your worth and your value and your security and your rest in who God is and who he calls you as a son or daughter. Do not seek to paint rotten apples red, but tend to the tree's deeper needs. This is Christ's legacy, that he would give his life as a ransom for many, finally and completely preserving a people for all eternity, for our good and for his glory. It's by his death that he accomplished our adoption into his house so that even in our flawed, broken, suffering selves, we could run the race with endurance, evidencing over and over and over again the supreme beauty and the surpassing worth of our faithful Savior. The exhortation of Hebrews 12 and of the entire biblical narrative, all of the Bible message, is not a call for improvement. It's not get better. It's a call to repentance to turn from your rebellion against God, from your pride and from your independence, and instead to look to Jesus. Father, you are good. When we are faithless, you are faithful. When we are weak, you are strong. Over and over again, you have proven to us your resolve for our adoption into your family. The truth that you call us sons and daughters is one that we know we can cling to as a bastion of hope in our darkest night. Father, we would ask that your spirit would empower each of us to leave a legacy that evidences your faithfulness and your worth. Protect us against the sins and the hindrances which cling so closely and give us strength to run the race before us with endurance. Father, we would ask that you would renew our love for our Messiah that you would equip us to behold him more deeply and more sweetly with each passing day. Lead us to reflect on the wonder of his cross, on his suffering in our place. Father, we call you Redeemer because you are able to use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. You use the faith of the flawed to fully and finally prove the worth of our Savior. It's in his name and by his blood and through his life and his death and his resurrection that we appeal to you with confidence. Amen. If you, brothers and sisters, felt at all um, uh, a heart aching for repentance or for encouragement, we would love to pray with you in the prayer corner back there, so you're welcome to come back there. I would also make a special appeal to those of you who do not get to claim Christ as Savior, uh, to those who uh, are not yet adopted into the heavenly household of God. If you are tired, if you are weak, if you are exhausted of running in futility and you're not sure what sort of legacy you'd be able to leave anyways, we would gladly welcome you to, to come to Christ by the blood of his cross. This is simply uh, turning, repenting, turning from our own lordship over our lives and instead looking to him, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith.